The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. We're looking this morning at just one verse of Scripture. I don't usually do that, but I'm doing it this morning. One verse of Scripture, Matthew 24, 14, which says, This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. There's so much in that one verse, and I hope we have a chance to unfold it today by the power of the Spirit. Back in 1984, I had the privilege of going to the Urbana uh, missions conference at University of Illinois at Urbana, and the opening speaker, uh, John Kyle, said, we are here because of the Great Commission. Well, I know he was talking about the Urbana conference, but those words kind of stuck with me, and I think they apply to us here this morning, at least in part. We are left on earth by God after our salvation because of the Great Commission. There's still work to be done. And we've assembled here to worship God and to give Him glory and praise, but also that we might be renewed and strengthened for the Great Commission work that we have to do. It's still before us. We are here because of the Great Commission. And you know something? Sometimes I forget that. I do. I I, I get wrapped up into my life. I get wrapped up in what we're doing. And it's easy this time of year to forget it. We get uh, involved in the busyness of the schedule as I talk to my wife all the time about the most wonderful time of the year. Well, sometimes it feels like the most over-the-top time of the year. And I don't know what we can do about it. We're all kind of a caught in a vortex, aren't we? And we're just kind of spinning along, and what can we do? Well, what we can do is separate ourselves out and say, Why am I here? Why am I alive? Why has God saved me, and why has He left me here? And the answer, at least in part, is we are here because of the Great Commission. Now, I'll always be thankful to God for an encounter I had with a young woman named Kim years ago at New Meadows Baptist Church up in Tottsfield. Changed my life. I have no idea where she is today. I have no idea what's going on with her today. And I can guarantee she doesn't know she's being preached about this morning. I can guarantee that. But she changed my life. What happened was in our small little Southern Baptist Church up there, about 40 people on a Sunday, a number of them were going out with InterVarsity on a mission trip. Summer mission trip. And uh, I was working as an engineer. I graduated from school. I was just settled in my life. Had a fruitful ministry, a good Bible study, different things going on. Nursing home ministry. You know, engaged and excited, praying for missions, doing different things, giving, but just being an engineer. And she came up to me after Sunday worship and she said, well, we're, we're going. A number of us are going on a mission trip. I said, well, I know, Kim. I'll be praying for you. She said, well, have you prayed about going? And uh, I said, <laughs> Well, no. She said, why not? I said, well, it's 10 weeks. They don't give you 10-week vacations in the engineering world. I'd have to quit my job to go on that mission trip. She said, well, have you, have you prayed about it? You should ask God. It's not your life, you know. I'll never forget her saying that. I was really taken aback. I kind of had thought it was my life, you know. But really what she was saying, in a very simple, basic way, is you are not your own. You're bought at a price. And therefore glorify God in your body. So I told her that I would pray about it. Yes, Kim, I will pray about quitting my engineering job and going on a 10-week mission trip to Kenya. Well, I forgot about that promise. You know how you forget about promises that you didn't really think you had to make. And so I went, and about a week and a half later, I was having my quiet time, and the Lord brought it to my memory. You said you would pray about it. 
And so I said, all right, Lord. I'll try to get the attitude. Lord, do you want me to quit my job and go on a 10-week mission trip? Yes. Yes, I do. No question about it. There's no doubt in my mind that the Lord wanted me to quit my engineering job and go on that mission trip. Well, Lord, I have another question. What do you want me to do when I get back? I don't assume I'm going to die as a martyr over in Kenya. What do you want me to do when I get back? And uh, the Lord led me to go to seminary full-time and on a path that led me eventually here. I had no plan for my life. I was just going week by week. But uh, I hope that this message or some conversation you have with someone like Kim this morning over the next few weeks might change your life. If God's calling on you to serve Him in a cross-cultural setting, to go overseas, to, to do something different with your life, whether you're a retired person or a college student or somewhere in between, or even just as a youth, you're starting to think about your life, thinking about what God might have in store for you, Get this in mind. We are here because of the Great Commission. There's work to be done. Let's glorify God in our body. Now, we're here this morning to worship God, and that's a good thing. And worship is a good thing. John Piper said concerning missions, we need to realize that missions is not the ultimate end or goal of the church. So what Piper said in Let the Nations Be Glad, he said, Missions is not the ultimate goal of a church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. When this age is over and countless millions fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. So it's for here and now that we consider missions. The ultimate end is that people who don't know him yet who have not called on his name, might call on the name of the Lord and be saved, and that they might eternally feast at the feet of Jesus and worship. That's the whole point. Missions is, uh, is not the ultimate end. Worship is. Now, as we look at Matthew 24, we come to an end-time chapter. Now, frankly, all of the New Testament is end-time, isn't it? Because the end times came when Jesus came. But Ma- Matthew 24 is an eschatology dream. People love to read through it and try to find out signs of the end and to wrestle with it. And I like to do that, too. I like Matthew 24. It's an exciting thing to consider end time. Now, the ultimate purpose of missions is eschatological, an end time purpose. We have the big picture in mind. What is God doing in the world in the end? And so I think it's right for us at this time of missions to kind of bring the two together and look a little bit at Matthew 24. Now, what I find in Matthew 24 is a good companion verse to the Great Commission. Now, you folks know the Great Commission. It says in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age." Well, that is a commission. It's a commandment that we should go and make disciples. Well, what I find in Matthew 24, 14 is a promise that the Great Commission will be fulfilled. It is Jesus giving us a guarantee that it's going to work. It's a remarkable statement. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. It is a promise from Jesus Christ. We tend to focus on the command and miss the promise, don't we? We tend to focus on the commission and miss the guarantee. And the guarantee is most certainly that this work will be done. And so, I think God deserves thanks and praise for how much of this commission he has already fulfilled. We should be standing here and saying, thank you, Lord, that you have done what only you could do. 
that you have taken the church from a small, kind of fearful upper room group, 120 or so, in Jerusalem, and you have conquered much of the world. Only Jesus Christ could do that. Now, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to glorify God together in three ways. First, we're going to understand this promise in Matthew 24, 14, biblically. We're going to recount some of God's mighty acts over the last, specifically the last 200 years to try to understand how he has really accelerated the fulfillment of the Great Commission. For that material, I am indebted to the Perspectives class. And if any of you have not taken the U.S. Center for World Missions Perspectives class, talk to Bob Stevens. This is a wonderful uh, class that you can take. He's right over here. I want to have you stand, Bob. But at any rate, if you want to know who he is, come and talk to me. But the U.S. Center for World Mission has put together a wonderful class called Perspectives on the World Christian Movement. And I learned so much about what God has done in the last 200 years. We're going to look at that very briefly. And then, thirdly, we're going to rededicate ourselves to the remaining task. All right? Well, let's look at it biblically. Matthew 24. I told you I'm just going to preach on one verse, but I just can't take a verse out of context. Let's do a little context work. Matthew 24:14 is found in Matthew's gospel. Matthew's gospel is all about the advancement of the kingdom of heaven. Specifically, it's about the king of the kingdom of heaven and his glory, Jesus Christ. So from the very beginning of Matthew's gospel, in which the record, it starts out the record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. It establishes Jesus as the Davidic king, the promised Messiah. He's the king of the Jews. But as it unfolds, it's more clear than ever, as you just go on and read, Jesus is really the king of the kingdom of heaven. That's what he is. Because he preaches, repent for the kingdom of heaven as at hand. So he's talking about an advancing kingdom. Well, as the kingdom advances, we find that it is a rejected kingdom. Jesus enters Jerusalem on a donkey. The people are all shouting and saying Hosanna and they're laying down cloaks and palm branches. But very soon after that, Jesus goes into the temple and cleanses the temple. I believe it's at least the second time that he cleansed the temple. And he, again, kind of joined battle with the scribes and Pharisees, with the Sanhedrin, with the chief priests and the elders, the teachers of the law, with the the powers that were at the time religiously. Because they were doing wrong. They were using religion for their own personal gain. They were filled with greed and self-indulgence. They were devouring widows' homes. They were living for this world. They were looking good on the outside, but inside they were full of dead men's bones. And so Jesus takes them on. And it culminates in Matthew 23 with the sevenfold woe that he speaks on the scribes and Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. And he goes through this seven times. A sevenfold condemnation from the one who will be the judge of all the earth. He has the right to do this. He has the right to speak a sevenfold woe on these false leaders and teachers. He calls them blind guides. And at the end of that, he laments over the spiritual state of Israel. Focuses on the city of Jerusalem and says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you that you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then Jesus left the temple. That is the desolation. When Jesus leaves, that's the desolation. 
And, and so his symbolic exit from the temple at that moment was very significant. You know how the prophets did symbolic actions that showed spiritual truth. It was very significant when he said, Behold, look now and watch, because your house has now left you desolate, because you're not going to see me again. And out he goes, until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Oh, I have to put in that hopeful thing, because someday they will say it. Amen? They will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, but they weren't ready to say it then. So it was a rejected kingdom. And as I've mentioned before, the disciples, having no clue as to what was going on, came up at that moment and said, Master, what magnificent buildings. Isn't the temple so ornate? Isn't it magnificent? You know, they're kind of like country folk and they don't get to the city much. And so they were just impressed by the architecture. That was bad timing, wasn't it? But for for God's purposes, wonderful timing. And so Jesus said, do you see all these stones? Do you see it all, all the glory? I tell you the truth, not one stone will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. What a shock. How can it be? And they're waiting for Jesus to take up his throne. And they're wanting to sit on the right and the left. And they're thinking, you know, I'm going to be undersecretary of whatever real soon. That's not going to happen. What do you mean the temple's going to be destroyed? That doesn't fit. And so they came to Jesus privately because I think they were afraid of the answer. And they said to Jesus on the Mount of Olives, it's called the Olivet Discourse. On the Mount of Olives, tell us, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now I tell you, that the threefold aspect of the disciples' question makes Matthew 24 one of the hardest chapters in the New Testament to interpret. When will this happen? What's this? The destruction of the temple. And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? How do we unravel the strands? How does it work? It's very complicated. And thankfully, we don't have to do it this morning. We're just focusing on one verse, remember? So we're going to zero in on that one verse. And Jesus is beginning to answer the question. From verse 4 up through verse 14, he begins, and this is the context, all right? As he's discussing it, he's talking about what I consider to be uncertain signs. Look what he says in verse 4 and following. He says, watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name claiming I am the Christ and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. You know, there's false Christs and false prophets that come, just like Judas the Galilean and Thutis who appeared during the time of the census. Gamaliel uh, referred to them in in Acts chapter 5. Have you ever heard of Thutis and Judas? Well, if you hadn't read Acts 5, you'd never hear of them at all. Let me tell you something. That's what makes this so magnificent. Jesus is just another religious leader, right? Sitting up on a mountain saying, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. No, he's not just anybody. Because when he says it, it happens. When Judas the Galilean says things, nothing happened. He ends up getting killed and his followers are scattered. When Thutis says something, nothing comes of it. He gets killed and his followers are scattered. You see, Jesus is the Christ. And when he says something that's going to be true from here to the end of time, you know what it is. That's the way Jesus is. And so he says, false Christ and false prophets are coming. You're going to hear wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you're not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There'll be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you're going to be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. And you'll be hated by all nations because of me. What are these? These are what I call uncertain signs of the end. What do we have? As we take that whole section... You have political events, geopolitical events, nations rising and falling, empires rising and falling. 
You have famines and earthquakes and cataclysms. And you have persecution and difficulty. These are uncertain signs of the end because they're true of every generation from the time that Jesus came until now. You can't use them to identify any one generation. 1526, Martin Luther, as he looked at the political events of Europe, wrote to a friend. Uh, now, what had happened is the Turks had conquered a section of the Hungarian Empire and were just literally knocking on the gates of Europe. They were ready to overrun. Most people thought that the Turks were going to overrun Europe. Luther thought so too. And he, he said that he believed that the end of the world was so imminent that he would not have the time to finish translating the Bible into German before the end of the world came. By the way, he finished seven years after that. Yes, he was wrong, but let me tell you something. It's always been a passionate interest of Christians to find out by looking at the equivalent of the New York Times or the Jerusalem Daily, whatever, Bugle, whatever they had back then, looking at the headlines and saying, what's going on, therefore, this is... Definitely, we're in the last 40 years or whatever. Hal Lindsey did it with the establishment of secular Israel. And so he began writing, Late Great Planet Earth and all that. We're looking at the signs of the times. All right? Well, Jesus said, let me give you a sure and certain sign. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So that is a sure and certain sign of the end. Now let's look at the verse itself and unfold it a little bit. I'm going to look at five aspects of the verse very briefly. First, the message in the verse. Secondly, the method. Thirdly, the mission. Fourth, the motive. And fifth, the mystery. First, the message within the verse. What does he say? This gospel of the kingdom. The word gospel means good news. This good news of the kingdom is going to be preached. Good news. Now, what is the kingdom? Well, it is God's sovereign right to rule over what he has created. He has the right to be king over what he made. But it goes deeper than that, doesn't it? The fact of the matter is that the kingdom of heaven's advancing has to do with human beings through repentance and faith coming under the submission of the king and glad about it. They're glad that Jesus is king now. They're delighted that God is ruling they're delighted. It's glad submission. That's where it is. You know, demons are subject, remember, in Christ's name. They're not glad about it at all. They're terrified of Jesus. Kings that don't even know Jesus are subject to his sovereign rule, though they know it not, because the king's heart is like a water course in the hands of the Lord. He directs it whatever way he pleases. But they don't know about it. It's unknowing. It's ignorant. No, we're talking about glad submission to the authority of Jesus the king. That is what is going to be preached. Such as it says in Psalm 97, 1. The Lord reigns, let the earth be glad, let distant shores rejoice. Be glad about it that God reigns, be delighted in it. And so, we desire to be delighted in the fact that God sits on his throne. And we want to find out what his will is and do it. That is the advance of the kingdom. Now, why is it good news? Why is it the gospel of the kingdom? Because God is a good king. And everything he ordains is right. And fruitfulness and beauty and order come from his reign. Amen? And so, it is a delightful thing that the kingdom is advancing. Now, we skipped a little key word there at the beginning. This gospel of the kingdom. Very interesting. Don't forget he was speaking to his apostles. Sitting there on the Mount of Olives. They're listening to him say these words. This gospel... Were they hearing a gospel? Were they seeing a gospel? Yes and yes. 
because they were the eyewitnesses. They were the specially chosen ones, the 12 apostles. They were chosen to be, in one sense, the foundation of the church, along with the prophets, it says in Ephesians. And how is that? Because of their eyewitness and their testimony. They saw the actions of Christ. Their minds were like little camcorders. They're just observing, and they're taking in. Do they understand it? Well, we already said they didn't understand. That's why they asked about how great the building was, remember? But they're taking it in. They're absorbing. And later, after Jesus had died on the cross and had been resurrected and risen to heaven, the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and remind you of everything that I have said to you. And so, all of a sudden, hey, you remember when Jesus said this? And things are, they're starting to understand and to remember the events of Jesus' life and his words exactly and what it all meant. And so we get the Gospel of Matthew, you get Mark, you get Luke, and you get John. You get the foundation of your faith. This Gospel, what does it mean? Well, this Gospel is the key to the advance. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And so what is this gospel of the kingdom? Well, what the apostles observed. We preach a biography first. We talk about Jesus. We talk about that he was born of the Virgin Mary, which we celebrate this time of year. We talk about how he led a sinless life, how he came and preached uh, to the people of Nazareth and of Capernaum and in the region of Galilee. We talk about what he said. We give people who have never heard the name of Christ a history and a biography of a man who really lived and who did incredible miracles, who spoke to the wind and the waves and they obeyed him, who fed the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish, who was able to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, and to drive out demons. He could do all these things. As one person said, for us, he's done all things well. And so we also have a record of his incredible teachings, the Sermon on the Mount, the teaching of the Good Shepherd, and of the Bread of Life. We have all these teachings, and so we preach this gospel of the kingdom. It's a biography. So we preach a biography. Secondly, it says concerning method, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached as a testimony. I want to take those two things and put them together. There's the preaching aspect of the advance, and there's the testimony aspect of the advance. How do I understand it? Well, the preaching is the, the proclamation, like a herald does, of the good news. So that we take the message across mountain ridges and across oceans and across rivers and other places through great danger to a people who have not heard of his fame or seen his glory. And we proclaim, we preach, we tell them the gospel. We preach that biography. We speak it. You know, we live in a very advanced technological age. And you know what they tell us? Preaching is soon to be obsolete. Don't you believe it? This verse right here tells me that preaching will be here to the end. Are you understanding what I'm saying? Even though I'm not like an MTV kind of exciting thing. Do you have an attention span long enough to follow and track? I think you do. Oh, I think they undersell you all the time. Preaching will be with us to the end. And it's not just this. It's what we did, what I did at the, at the water cooler, at the coffee breaks. It's, it's what I did when riding with co-workers on, on two-hour uh, trips to a vendor or something. It's the preaching of the gospel. It's the verbal proclamation of Christ. And all of you can do it. But there's also the testimony part. You know what that means? It means your life has to live up to what it is you claim. Now, none of us are going to be able to do that perfectly. But we are like witnesses. And the witness cannot be discredited. We have to live up to what we proclaim. And none of us will do it perfectly. Oh, how humble we are when we see our wickedness and our sin. 
But we must preach and we must give a testimony by our life. Thirdly, what is the scope? Well, there's three aspects. There's the geographic aspect, and there's the ethnic aspect, and there's the chronological aspect. It says, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world, that's geographic, as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So you get three aspects. First of all, geographic. The whole world. Is there any part of God's world you can say, well, this chunk doesn't belong to God? Oh, no, he claims it all. He's got his flag in every bit of it. Because the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That verse is over the beautiful map. Here, right outside. If you haven't seen it, go look and look above and see that it's been claimed for God. It's all his. So the geographic scope, the whole world. Secondly, ethnic, to all nations. This phrase has gained greater insight. We've learned more about what these ethne, these ethnic groups are. And I'm going to talk about that more in a moment over the last 200 years. But it's going to be preached to all peoples, all nations. And chronological. Well, this, this preaching, this gospel advance is going to go on to the end of the age. Like Jesus says in the Great Commission. Surely I am with you always. To the very end of the age. Chronologic advance. All right? Fourthly, what is the motive? What is the motive of this gospel advance? Well, it says, and then the end will come. Well, I must say, in the Bible, it's not the greatest statement of motive. But I think if you understand what ends God has in, means, has in mind, then you'll understand how this is a magnificent statement of our motive. What is the end? The Greek word is telos. What is the end that's going to come? Well, there's just the end of the world, what we call the day of God, Judgment Day and beyond, when God forever destroys evil and wickedness, when he purifies the, the world and when we have the new heaven and the new earth, the home of righteousness, that end, do you want that to come? Are you looking forward to the new heaven and the new earth? Well, it says if you're looking forward to the new heaven and the new earth, then you should speed its coming, it says in Second Peter 3.12. Speed its coming. Well, how are we going to speed its coming? Well, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. And not before. So that means that there's still work to be done. There's still an advance. There's a, there's a border, a boundary. Only God knows what it is. But there is an advance. But perhaps there's a second meaning. The end, the telos, is the purpose. Then the purpose will come. What is the end purpose of God? Well, God's purpose is always the same, ultimately. His own glory. That he might be displayed and revealed and made known. That he might be worshipped. That's the end that will come. Then the nations will fall on their faces before him and gladly say, The Lord reigns, let the nations be glad. That's the end that will come. And that is our motive as well. The end of God. What his purposes are. And you know what? It will end what I consider to be the greatest injustice in the history of the world. You know what it is? It's that Jesus Christ doesn't get what he truly deserves for what he did. That he is denigrated. That he is thought of as an afterthought. That he's no big deal. That he's not special, not the center of your life or other people's lives. That is a great injustice and it will end when the end of the world comes. Fifthly, mystery. What is the mystery? Well... You don't get it in this one verse, but you get it in the context. Look at verse 36, Matthew 24, 36. Now, I know you said I'm just doing one verse. I couldn't, I couldn't control myself. We're just going to look at this one other verse. Is that okay? Matthew 24, 36. The mystery is this. No one knows about the day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. That's mystery. Like William Cooper said, in God Moves in Mysterious Ways, God is his own interpreter. 
Do you know what I mean? He decides when the nations have been reached. He decides when 2414 has been fulfilled. He's the one who's allowed to do that. Until then, we have to wake up and say, oh, the sun came up. There's more work to be done. I've still got work to do. We are here because of the Great Commission. There's still commission work to be done. So, summary. The message is this gospel of the kingdom. The method is it will be preached as a testimony. The mission is the whole world to all ethnic groups until history is over. The motive is, and then the end, the end of the world and God's purposed end will come. The mystery is, but no one knows when that day will be. Now, what I want to do is take a moment and look at how it's gone from that point. Jesus isn't Judas the Galilean, and he's not Thutis. He's not a false Christ. Has he been as good as his word? Can we see the progress? I can see it. We started in the upper room, 120 believers. Now, there are countless millions who claim the name of Christ in almost every tribe and language and people and nation worshiping him. Jesus has been as good as his word. Isn't that thrilling? He made a prediction, and it has come true. Over the last 200 years, the gospel has especially exploded. Where was biblical faith 200 or so years ago? In Europe? In the new nation of the United States? Certain outposts in other parts of the world, in Latin America, in Africa, mostly near the coast. Kerry had set up his work in Serampore. That's it. And a few other little outposts where there was trading and there were some Christians there. Since that time, do you see the progress that's been made? There is not a geographic nation on earth that there's not a New Testament church in. Isn't that thrilling? That wasn't true 15 years ago. But the fall of the Berlin Wall has opened up countries like Albania. Other things have happened. The, the, the uh, events in the Islamic world have opened up countries like Afghanistan. Things are happening. Things are moving. It's a thrilling thing to see. Now, God used four individuals to really help us understand Matthew 24, 14, and we don't have time to go through them today. But let me tell you who they are and what they contributed briefly. If you're interested for more, then I've done my job for Bob Stevens and the Perspectives class. Saying, boy, tell me more about William Carey and, and Hudson Taylor and Cameron Towns and Donald McGavern. I want to know more about these guys. But they have helped us understand Matthew 24, 14. William Carey basically told Protestants, the work isn't done. It wasn't just for the apostles. The Jesuits, the Roman Catholics, are sending out missionaries all over the world, but we want the true gospel to be preached. And so we need to find out how we, as Protestants, can advance the gospel. We need to exert ourselves. We need to expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. So get moving, Protestants. Let's get into the mission game. That's what he did. And so some call him the father of modern missions. Hudson Taylor looked at where the work was being done, and it was all on the, on the boundaries, on the edges. Like he went to China, and he's there in the outpost, the missionary outposts, and he's seeing that these missionaries are living comfortable lives. They're not venturing out much. They're a few converts, but not much. And he said, what about the vast, teeming, unreached millions in the inland regions? And I will never forget a quote I read concerning... Hudson Taylor, as he looked at this map of China with all of its provinces, and he realized there's no witness in the inland regions. And he was on a worship service in England. Now, when you think of 19th century England, think 21st century America. It was kind of the center of evangelical faith, of missions interests, of good preaching, of all kinds of things, of books and publishers, and all kinds of gospel wealth. And this is what he heard or, or said. 
his own words. On Sunday, June 25th, 1865, unable to bear the sight of a congregation of a thousand or more Christian people rejoicing in their own security while millions were perishing for lack of knowledge, I wandered out on the sands alone in great spiritual agony. And there the Lord conquered my unbelief and I surrendered myself to God for this service. I told him that all the responsibility as to issues and consequences must rest with him. That as his servant, it was mine to obey and follow him, his to direct, his to care for, and to guide those who might labor with me. Need I say that peace at once flowed into my burdened heart? What would he feel about our worship service? Would he see a bunch of satisfied, comfortable people who are rejoicing in their own security while millions are perishing? I don't think that that's too far from what happens in America, in American churches. My feeling is let's not, let's not be that way. Let's follow people like Hudson Taylor. Say the work's not finished yet. And so he began praying for mission teams for each province of China. And God raised them up. And his watchword was, was this. God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. That is his spiritual secret. Thirdly, Cameron Townsend. Cameron Townsend was a missionary in the early 19th century in Guatemala. He was uh, preaching the gospel to Indian tribes in Guatemala in this national language, which was Spanish. He comes to one Indian household and he's sharing the gospel in Spanish. They know Spanish okay. It was the national language and all that. But finally, one of them said, if your God's so smart, how come he can't speak my language? Wow. Well, that struck him. Good point. And so he began looking into the issue of languages. At first, he thought there were 500 languages in the world. Then he upped his estimate to 1,000 and then 2,000. By the time he died in 1982, he thought there were 3,000 languages in the world. Now the estimates uh, are around 5,000. And the group he founded, the Wycliffe Bible Translators, understand how much work there is yet to be done to get God's word into the heart language of these nations and peoples. And they're continuing to do the work. The fourth man working about the same time as Cameron Townsend was Donald McGavern. He was a missionary in India. And as he looked around and saw what was going on in India and all of the complexities of their society, he started to notice cultural groups that he called homogeneous units. They were, they, were, they were similar in language and culture and history. They saw themselves as a group. And he said, you know, this is probably what Matthew 24, 14 means when it says to all nations. It's not to geopolitical nations like I represented at United Nations. No, there are groups within China and within India and within Latin America that need to be reached with the gospel. God is his own interpreter But apparently the work's not done yet, so maybe we need to look a little more closely and say that there's still some nations that have never heard the gospel. And so he came up with the idea of the hidden peoples, the so-called unreached people groups. Initial estimates when uh, when he started looking at this idea uh, put it at 24,000 unreached people groups. That was in 1950. In 1980, it was down to 17,000 unreached people groups. Now, the number may be about half that. Isn't that remarkable? The progress that's being made right in front of our eyes. It's thrilling to me. I remember praying when I was a student at MIT in Campus Crusade for Christ. We were praying for 15,000 unreached people groups. It's far less than that now. Amazing statistics about God's glory. I could give you number after number what God is doing. Well, let me give you just one. Uh, and then if you want the others to come in, I'll give you the first of you this sheet. Okay. Um, but in A.D. 100, 100 A.D., about, you know, a little, about a generation or two, depending on how you define it, after Christ, get this. There was an estimated 12 unreached people groups per church congregation. That means every church congregation needed to reach out to 12 unreached people groups. Now, 
with 5 million Christian congregations worldwide, get this, there are at least 500 congregations for each unreached people group. So all I have to do as pastor is find our other 499 sister churches, get together and find that one unreached people group, and we'll be set. We'll have done our part, right? Let's get those 500 churches together and go reach that one unreached people group. Brothers and sisters, this is doable. Do you see it? It's doable if people are willing to sacrifice. If people are willing to believe what I said at the beginning of this message, and that is, we are here for the Great Commission. We're not here for the other reasons. And it's so confusing, isn't it, at Christmas time? We forget. Why am I here? What's going on? What am, I, what am I doing in my life? 500 congregations for every one unreached people group. Brothers and sisters, with God's help, we can do it. Now, there's still great work to be done, isn't there? Look at the 1040 window. Look at the Muslim world. Are those folks going to be easy to reach with the gospel? What do you think? I think some of these unreached people groups, the price will be martyr's blood, guaranteed. I have no idea but that there might be even martyrs sitting today that God might use to open up to open up a group. And it's not just one. It's usually a history. And then, little by little, they start to see what's happening and they come to faith. It's not going to be easy. But we have this promise. Listen. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Now, what application can we take from this? Well, I want to take two kind of odd illustrations, analogies to put it together. The first is insider trading. And the second is horse gambling. That is just unseemly, right? Now, I'm not advocating either insider trading or horse gambling, okay? I'm not, okay? But insider trading says, I've got some information about what's going to happen, and you need to get in on this so you can make a killing, okay? Do we not have that, brothers and sisters? Do we not have some inside information on what's going to happen? And don't we need to kind of invest in this so that we can make an eternal killing with God? I think we do. I think anything else you invest your money and your time and your life with is going to be a waste. But this is a blue chip stock, folks. This is most certainly going to happen. How about horse racing? Well, we used to live in Louisville, and they have the Kentucky Derby. I never went down there. There are always like a quarter of a million people, and you couldn't get near it. Besides which, my faith frowns on gambling, and so should yours. But it's a great illustration. (laughs) Can you imagine if you wanted to bet on a horse, a $2 bet, I guess that's what they go for, and you went with the race... Three-quarters or four-fifths over. And there's secretariat out in front by 50 lengths or 40 lengths or whatever. Say, I really like to place a bet. Can I place a bet? What do you think they're going to tell you? The window's closed. You can bet on the next race, but not while the race is going on. My friends, you can invest or bet or whatever while this race is going on. Jesus is winning. The gospel is advancing. Invest in Christ. This is most certainly going to happen. It's a guarantee. There is no way that you can lose. Any dollar invested lighting, and by the way, each one of those lamps represents $1,000, except one of them. Jack told me it represents 500 sorry. Okay, but he lit it, praise God. I said, Jack, we're going to light that lamp fully. And then the rest of them. Our goal is $50,000 for missions. Can you think of a better way to spend your money? $100, $300, $1,000? I can't. Invest your money. Because you know what happens? The way it works with Lottie Moon is that money goes directly into putting uh, mission units, that is families or missionaries, on the field to advance the gospel. Pray. Ask the Lord to raise up laborers for his harvest field. He will most certainly answer that prayer. And then go find Kim. I don't know where she is, but have Kim talk to you about your life, okay? 
and say, you know, our pastor thinks really highly of you. Who's your pastor? I don't even know if she'd remember me, but just go find a Kim in your life or somebody like that to challenge you to do something dangerous, something risky with your life, to take your vacation or to quit your job or to take your retirement and go. We are looking as ministerial staff at some interesting and fascinating ways in various parts of the world for short-term mission to go on. We're already doing works in, in East Asia and uh, in various places in East Asia and in the Caribbean, at ha- in Haiti and other places. Uh, there's opportunities in Eastern Europe. If you are interested, keep aware of what we're doing. We're looking at some strategic things, smaller teams sent for shorter amount of times to serve as an encouragement to missionaries. I mean, we're, we're looking to do more and more things. Get involved. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.